how God has worked this out because today is the very first Sunday in Advent. This is the day of the talking about the coming of the Lord during uh, for His second coming. And um, we finished two weeks ago Isaiah chapter 34. And then last week, you'll remember, Pastor Paul Hartley was here speaking to us. And then I told you at the end of my sermon two weeks ago that Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 35 are paired together. And Isaiah 34 talks about all of the bad stuff that's going to happen. And Isaiah 35 talks about a lot of good stuff. And before I start talking about what the good stuff is, let's go ahead and read it for ourselves. It's only ten verses. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. When the eyes of the blind shall be, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come up to it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, technical stuff. What are we looking at? First of all, I don't know what version of the Bible you're looking at, and I don't know what the person, the, the company who published your Bible, how they formatted it. Um, I have a brand spanking new Bible that I just bought, it's called a Reader's Bible. It's the English Standard Trans English Standard Version, but it is formatted as if it was just a regular book. The only divisions it has are the actual books of the Bible, and then it has a, a gentle reminder as you're transitioning from chapter to chapter. But there are no verses, no, no verse numbers in here. So it's like just reading a book, just reading through a chapter, which makes it challenging when I'm trying to study verse by verse by verse, but it's wonderful for my devotions. But one of the things I wanted to show you guys is the way it's formatted right now is you'll see chapter 34 and chapter 35 are shown for what they are. They are poetry. They're a song that was written. So you'll notice it's not blocked like a written paragraph, like prose, it's actually written, written out or, or printed out 
as a poem or as a song. And so what we understand as we look at Psalm, I mean Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 35, which are paired together, is that this was written like a prophetic psalm or a prophetic poem. And when it was brought into Isaiah's writings as part of this book, there's some consternation between scholars. Some people think that it's placed in a bad spot. Some people think that there was insertions and, and things that were moved around. And let me, again, just give you so you'll get an understanding as you're studying the book of Isaiah. A number of months ago, when we first started studying Isaiah, I told you that Isaiah is 66 chapters long. In, the, in my head, it's either 65 or 66. I don't have the note written down. Um, and chapters 1 through 39 are the first book of Isaiah. And then chapter 40 to the end is the second book of Isaiah. Okay? So we're nearing the end. Well, there are some scholars, and, and, and if you look at verses, I mean, chapters 36, 37, and 38, and even 39, you'll see that 36, 37, 38, and 39 are actually a copy from 2 Kings and Chronicles, and it's talking about, I mean, yeah, 2 Kings and Chronicles, talking about King Hezekiah's reign. It's giving you a history. And some people think, some scholars think, that those four chapters, 36, 37, 38, and 39, actually got inserted in the wrong spot because they feel that 34 and 35 actually lead into 40 and following. Who knows? I wasn't the one that collated all of this. I certainly wasn't the scribe that put it on the original scroll. But what I do know is that, that we are nearing the end of this first, what is known as the first book of Isaiah, and this is a wonderful, for me, incredible reminder of God's promises. Now, the other thing you need to know in just studying the book of Isaiah, for, not, not for, for content or for, for devotional purposes, but just to understand how it's, how it's written, Isaiah chapter 34 and 35 are seen by scholars as having a dual way of reading them, two ways of reading them. They can be read as they were written to the Israelites that were in trouble at the time of Hezekiah's reign. If you remember that whole story, and if you go back later on, not right now, but if you go and read 36, 37, 38, 39, you'll see where the king of Assyria has come, has surrounded Jerusalem, they're making threats. Hezekiah literally goes into the temple, tears his robes and says, God, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And then God says, I've got your back. And then overnight, literally, 180,000 members of the army of Assyria are slain. The guys wake up, the army wakes up, and literally every guy on either side is dead. So it's like every other man dies. And then... Uh, King Sennacherib picks up, it takes up his remaining army members and they leave. And then the Israelites go out and they plunder the, the dead that are out there in the valley. And there's all of these riches come back. You remember we talked about how Hezekiah, in his desperation, gave all of the gold that was in, gold and silver that was in Israel, uh, trying to stave off Hezekiah, I mean, uh, Sennacherib's 
onslaught, literally stripping the gold off the doors of the temple. And now we, and then we, I showed you a couple weeks ago where it talked about how all the wealth of Israel's back, because if you look at five, chapter 38 and 39, you'll see Hezekiah showing the envoys from Babylon all of the wealth that's in, in his coffers. Well, where did that come from? Where did all that silver and gold and wealth and jewels come from? It came from the dead army out, outside of Jerusalem when they plundered them. Okay? So God gave back what they lost over and above what they had lost. And God blessed and blessed and blessed. And so some scholars see Isaiah 34 and 35 talking to those people who are going to be going through a horrible time saying, yes, Sennacherib has been, um, is, is being taken care of, but there is coming a point where Babylon is going to rise up and you're going to be pulled out of your life and you're going to be brought to Babylon in an exile because you as a nation have not been living the way you're supposed to live and you're going to be 70 years in exile. And then there's going to come a time when I'm going to restore everything and it's going to be better than it was before. So some scholars say that chapter 34 and 35 talk about the, the historical uh, Babylonian exile where the people of Israel, people of Judah, are taken to Babylon, are spending 70 years in Babylon, and then are brought back. And so that's 34 and 35, the promise where it's going to be desolated because they, they didn't follow God. Remember last two weeks ago we talked about how Edom, the, name, the land of red, um, Edom was going to be decimated because they refused to follow God and to be people of God. But then God promises in 35 this glorious, wonderful thing happening so that's one scholar's view. Another, another school of view is this is actually talking about the coming of the Messiah. And what we talked about two weeks ago was that Isaiah 34 talks about before the coming of the Messiah, God is going to literally twist and break and destroy everything, bringing it back to its point of chaos and void. Remember last time we talked about how in Genesis chapter 2 or chapter 1, it says the earth was without form and void, and how the words um, in Isaiah chapter 34 talk about that formlessness and that void, and how some scholars think that there's going to be literally a tearing or a rending of all of creation as God brings on his wrath on the people who refuse to serve God, but that there will be a righteous remnant that will survive through that, and then Messiah will come. And then Messiah will bring about a, a restoration or a new Jerusalem and a new heavens and a new earth. And so there are some scholars who see this as a messianic prophecy. And there are some scholars who say it's both. Okay? There's no 100% final, this is the way it's supposed to be. I present to you what, others people, what other people have said. So some think it's historical. Some think it's prophetic. Some think it's both. Okay? Now, what does it say? Regardless of whether it's historical, prophetic, or both, what is Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10 saying? Well, if you first look at um, the first section of it, again, I don't have the chapter, the verses in, in front of me. I'll just read these verses. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It's, it shall blossom abundantly. And rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. This is talking about a restoration again of 
Remember, everything was laid waste. If you go back a couple chapters, you see where God pronounced um, a, a, a catastrophe on everything, where, where fields were drying up and all of the things that were normally fertile and beautiful were just drying up and becoming desolate. God is saying in these first few verses, there's going to be this restoration of joy, I mean, of beauty and blossom and abundance. And, the, and it says, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of God. It's going to be a majestic, glorious thing where it turns the people's hearts back to God, showing his strength. The next section says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance with the recompense of God, and he will come and he will save you. What this is basically saying is, if there's anybody in your party who's kind of scared and worried and frustrated and losing heart, just remind them of the hope that they have. Remind them that God is God and he has not changed. And yes, it's looking bad, because remember they've just gone through 34. And things are horrible. But God is still God, and he has promised that there's going to be a restoration. And so these words are to the people who are feeling disheartened or weak need. In other words, they're just they're stumbling under the weight of life, or the, the feeble hand, I mean the feeble knees, excuse me, the weak hands. Um, when it's talking about weak hands, what it's saying is one of the one of the images in, in Israelite uh, writings is when it talks about the righteous right hand, it's talking about powerful strength. Okay? So when somebody says, I uphold you with my right hand, that means there's this powerful strength, just this sense of just rippling muscles and it's just incredibly powerful. But when it talks here about these these weak hands, it's they can't even grip. They're so everything's so bad. Everything's so horrible. They don't even have any strength left. Okay? So Isaiah is saying through the, through the Holy Spirit, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, there's nothing to be afraid of. God is still on the throne. The promises that he has made to you are still valid. You may not see them yet, but they are coming. And you can trust that God is not going to let his word fall. Okay? Then it says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame man shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy, waters will break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert, the burning sand become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water, in the haunted jackals where they lie down, the grass will become reeds and rushes. I'm going to stop at the grass and becoming reeds and rushes, and I'm going to back up a little bit. The jackals lying down is a place of desolation. And there might be grass there, but here this is saying God is going to restore this to the point where it's going to be so wet and so marshy instead of so dry and so desolate that the desert grasses are literally going to be consumed and overtaken by reeds and rushes, which only happen, which only grow where there is rich, fertile soil that is continually moist. We would say in our vernacular, wetlands. Okay? So, God is going to literally change everything. The promise is being made. It doesn't matter how desolate and dark and rocky and dirty and sand. It's not, it, it can't sustain life. All of that's going to change. But these words that say the eyes will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame jump like a deer, 
and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Those are very specific promises. But the question is, is it is it that God's going to do that at the time of the restoration of Israel after the Babylonian exile? Or is that evidence of the Messiah? And this is where the conflict comes in some of the, some of the scholars. Because if you remember, in the Gospels, John the Baptist gets arrested by King Herod. And John the Baptist is in prison... And Jesus' ministry is now taking off. And it says that John literally sends a couple of his disciples from the prison to go and interview Jesus. And what, is the, what does John ask his disciples to ask Jesus? What does he ask them to ask? Are you the one or is there somebody else that we should be looking for? And I believe, and unfortunately I didn't put it in my notes, but I believe it's Matthew chapter 11. Let's turn there. See what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 11. Maybe that wasn't 11. <laughs> there it is. I don't have the verse numbers. That's it. Oh, here it is. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. I'm still going to... It's a tool that I'm going to have to get used to. It's a brand new tool. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words by his disciple and said to him, Are you the one who has come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered him, Go and tell John this. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The words of Jesus to encourage John, but also to answer, are you the one, or is there someone else that we should be looking for, comes straight out of Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. God will bring, at the time of Messiah, God will bring about a healing such that you've never seen before. A glorious, a glorious, literally transformation of the natural by the supernatural into blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And then finally, at the tail end of this, I believe it's verses 8 through 10 in Isaiah 35, it says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall be long to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they'll not go astray. No lion shall be there, no ravenous, and etc., etc., etc. And what this is, again, this is an image of the people of Israel coming back out of their, their exile and returning to Jerusalem along these highways, singing for joy and just celebrating as if it was a time of festival back in, the, back in the day, back before we had all of our troubles. This is a restoration of the times of coming to Jerusalem on our annual trek, or a three, a three times annual trek to celebrate God and what he's done for us. But there's some specific wording here. 
It says, this is a highway that is called the way of holiness. What does your verse, version of the Bible say? The way of holiness. Highway of holiness. What in your mind are you hearing there? I think God's path, the narrow way. God's what? The narrow way. Oh, Adam, Matthew chapter 7. The narrow as opposed to the broad way, the way that the righteous will follow. Okay. Okay. Good thought. Anybody else? The way of holiness that leads back to. Well, let's, let's look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. Matthew chapter 40, 24, verses 36 through 44. Jesus is speaking and he says, But concerning that day and hour, talking about the time that the, the Father is going to determine when the, when the Lord will return, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days... Before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And that's an interesting teaching from Jesus. And I, I don't, I hesitate to try and interpret it. These are his words. But I want to read to you something that was in my devotions this week. It was um, actually the thing that I read yesterday. Talking about the coming of the Lord or the advent of the Christ. And it says, when her husband is near and does not let her want for anything, she expects, I mean, does not let her want for anything she expects, hopes for and enjoys. A wife says she loves her husband, and it easily, and she says it easily and normally. But when the husband is far away, when the waiting is prolonged for months and years, when doubt grows that he will ever return, Oh, then the true test of love begins. What light, what splendors in the possibilities this wife has to resist while she fixes her eyes on the anonymous crowd and tries to pick out him, only him. What power of real, living, strong testimony emanates from the faithful vigilance, the unquenchable hope, 
which this woman lives behind the bitter doorway of waiting. Oh, how each one of us would like to be the bridegroom who returns disguised as a poor stranger whom she does not recognize, but to whom she repeats again and again her certainty of his return and the sweetness of his love. Well, every evening when the darkness wraps itself round my prayer, he, God, is there, disguised as a poor man watching me. When I endure in the darkness of faith the prolonged wait for the God who comes, he has already come to me and is embracing me silently with the same embrace with which I, in faith, embrace him. And that was an interesting meditation. The idea that a woman, a wife, who is desperately in love with her husband, but her husband has had to go on a trek away from her and it has caused them to be separated for literally months and years and she continues day by day by day to look for her husband I was reminded of the the, the widow's watch that, that are up in, in especially it's in the New England area where um, the in the seafaring towns where they literally had a platform up on the roof of the building and if you look at these old buildings, there's a, a platform up there with a wooden, with a white wooden rail around it. And the wives of sailors would go up there and just look at the horizon on the, on the sea, day after day after day, just standing out there looking for the silhouette of the ship to return on the horizon. There was an intense longing, an everyday longing for what was not with me, but the one who was the object of my love. And there's this sense of, I have to continually, day by day, keep my love fresh. Keep my love available. Do not allow anything to keep, to distract me. Or draw me away from the object of my love. Because it's possible. I mean, look at the story of Bathsheba and David. Right out of the Bible. A husband is away for who knows how long, and she falls into an adulterous affair with the king. Now, of course, he's the king, blah, 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 blah. But the bottom line is, she said yes just as much as David said yes. And you may know people in your own life that that has happened with. And there's this, there's this intentionality that is talked about with the spouse who was left behind, who's waiting for the return of the groom. And Jesus himself says, you don't know the day or the hour, only the Father does. I don't even know the day, just the Father. But I'm telling you, stay alert. Why did he say that? Why did Jesus say, stay alert? Obviously it's important or it wouldn't have been included in the Gospels. And it's in red in some of your Bibles, which means it's even more important because it's the direct words of Jesus. Why was it important for Jesus to say to his disciples, stay alert? Because the time is coming. You don't know when. But you need to be aware and be watching. And I think, honestly, as I've reflected on that, it's, it's, it's just been the last day or so that I've been reflecting on it, there's this idea 
that it's easy for my fervor to just kind of become dry. I love the Lord, but I got life I gotta live. It's hard to stay on the mountaintop. It's easier to just be out in the valley. I mean, it'd be wonderful if we could be at a weekend retreat every single day. But the reality is, you got to go home and change the sheets and sweep the floor and go to work on Monday and do your normal stuff. But there has to be a continual longing, a continual watching for the advent, the coming of the Messiah. We have this incredible promise. Isaiah 34 showed us that the end is not going to be pleasant for this world. But the hope and the promise that we have is is that we will either be carried through it because God has our back, or we will have already left the earth and we'll just return with Jesus to this glorious renewal and renewing. But the words of Jesus for me, when I'm thinking about the hope, of the advent of the, of the coming Messiah is stay alert. Don't allow yourself to become complacent. Don't allow yourself the laziness of not reading and not praying and not focusing on Him. Because if you do, there is such a thing, I can show it to you out of the Scriptures, I'm not threatening anything, there is such a thing as called, that's called apostasy. And what that is, is that's a carelessness that ends up in a fiery, red-hot coal becoming nothing more than just ash because of carelessness and not allowing that flame to continue and not making sure that that flame continued to be nurtured and cared for and kept flaming. And apparently it's a danger to all of us. It's not just a matter of getting to heaven and Jesus saying, well, why did you let your love grow cold? There's the chance that you may not be on that highway. Because what did it say in Isaiah 35? It said, only those who are righteous will walk there. That's what, when Elsie said, Matthew chapter 7, the broad and the narrow way. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a very, very true statement. Only those who walk that narrow path see eternal life. Jesus very clearly said later on in Matthew 25, there will be a separation between sheep and goats. And the words of the goats are, but Lord! See, they weren't agnostics. They weren't atheists. They were people who thought they were serving the Lord. But all they were were religious Fakes, kind of like the Pharisees. I had a conversation with Jesse earlier this week about that idea of just being religious but not having a fire. And so the word for this morning is hope. But that hope needs to be kindled daily by constant looking at the word, constantly being in prayer being aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the thing is, is we have such a blessing. We have such an incredible blessing because the Holy Spirit of God is ever-present with us. 
We don't have to travel to a location to go be with God. All you have to do is take a moment and go, oh yeah, you're still here, aren't you? Because he, he's right there with you. No matter what you're doing, you can take a moment, even in the middle of your busyness, to stoke the fire a little bit. So let's pray this week. God, help us to be ever vigilant, to stay alert to the fact that you're coming. And to know that we have a righteousness that is not our own making. It is from the blood of Christ which was shed for us. It is because of the grace of God which is bestowed on us. And so God, we thank you and praise you and give you glory for what you've done for us by your grace. And we just ask God that you would please be with us this week. In Jesus' name. I want to close this time. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up at this point. We're going to sing one last song. But I'm going to close our time this morning by reading to you a, 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 um, the words of a hymn that, again, out of my devotional this week. It's called Lift Up Your Heads, Ye Mighty Gates, written by George Weissel. I think it's probably Georg Weissel. Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates. Behold, the King of glory waits. The King of Kings is drawing near. The Savior of the world is here. Fling wide the portals of your heart. Make it a temple set apart. From earthly use for heavenly heaven's employ, adorned with prayer and love and joy. Redeemer, come, with us abide. Our hearts to thee we open wide. Let us thy inner presence feel. Thy grace and love in us reveal. Amen.